Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and here in Washington, there's been a lot of talk lately about homelessness and how it's on the rise. Last year, the total number of people experiencing homelessness in the district was 7,748. That's a nearly 13 percent increase from 2013. The number of homeless families was up, too, by 25 percent. So we're calling this week's show A Roof Over Your Head as we try to get a better understanding of what's happening with homelessness in the city and what our new mayor, Muriel Bowser, intends to do about it. We'll hear from a number of homeless residents, some who've been without a home of their own for years, and some who are newly without shelter. But when it comes to people experiencing homelessness, living indoors isn't always an option. So given the cold, cold weather we've had of late, how do people living outdoors survive? Lauren Ober hit the streets with members of the Georgetown Ministry Center's hypothermia outreach team to find out. On this sub-freezing night, few people are stirring on the Georgetown University campus. But there is some activity. Right now, we are in the process of gathering up our supplies. So we have a lot of new socks that we can hand out to people. And if we, like, if we see a person, we'll offer them the supplies, like the socks, the blankets... That's Hannah Collins. She's a freshman at Georgetown and the student leader of tonight's hypothermia outreach team. We stick to three main routes, and one is down down K Street, one is down M Street, and one is up Wisconsin to Safeway on Wisconsin, and then up to Dumberton Oats Park. Tonight's route is K Street. The team is made up of two undergrads, a grad student, a staff member, and her husband. All have come out on this frigid night to hand out supplies to the city's most vulnerable, people who live on the streets all year round. The team also helps people get to shelters if they want to go. Grad student Alex Green has some questions. If if someone says that they don't want our help, do we call the hypothermia outreach service anyway because they can make more of a judgment about whether they're in sort of life-threatening condition? It kind of depends on, like, how bundled up the person seems. Like, if they legitimately look like, okay, like, they've got blankets and a hat. Like, they're, like, they don't seem like they're dangerously cold. Like, by their behavior and, like, how they're dressed. And you're just like, okay, like, sir, ma'am. On the walk down K Street, the team encounters only one homeless person. His name is Rashid, and he takes a pair of socks, a space blanket, and some bright red gloves. But at the crazy series of overpasses where K Street and Rock Creek Parkway intersect, the team finds a lot of folks in some pretty shocking circumstances. Thank you very much. How you doing, man? I'm, I'm well, thank you. How are you? All right, hanging in there. I'm trying my best. That's John Smallwood. He's living inside the bridge at K and 27th Streets with his girlfriend and three other people. See, there's this small sort of hobbit door on the side of the bridge abutment. One of the outreach volunteers knocks, and Smallwood answers. All right, does anyone else in there need anything? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They they wouldn't get up and answer the door, though, but yeah, they need stuff. Thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you. You God bless y'all. Smallwood was a house painter in Virginia, but when the economy tanked, he couldn't find work. He ended up homeless. Yeah. How long have you been staying in there? I've been here for seven months, but my older friend Tim, he's been here for, he told me, three years. Um, how'd you find this place? Well, I, I met uh, a friend, I met Tim and Lester, and uh, I was homeless at the time. And actually, they took me to Georgetown Ministries first. And I had lunch, and I messed with the computer and everything. And then after that, he, he you know, he seen I was a nice guy and everything. He brought me down here and said if I needed to, I could stay. Yeah. Are you guys okay with the cold in there? 
I tell you what, uh, I got hooked up with a tent, and with them sleeping bags in that tent, I'm, I'm as warm as can be. I'm not hurting for anything. Smallwood and the rest of the folks living in the bridge take some socks and blankets. Normally, the team would have more supplies to hand out, but with the recent brutal weather, inventory's low. All right. I appreciate take your help. Care. You take yeah. care. Have All a right. good night. Thank you. From the bridge, it's on to a small encampment under the Whitehurst Freeway. This group is largely Latino. Hannah Collins asks a man sleeping on a pallet covered in blankets if he needs anything. Un par de calcetinas, he says. One pair of socks. Inches from the man's pallet, about a half a dozen rats are ripping into a plastic bag. Other rats scurry around a cluster of sleeping people. For Georgetown sophomore Alex Nino, the scene is beyond eye-opening. It tells me how much worse alternatives there must be if this is what these people think is the best that they can do right now. You know what I mean? The last stop of the night is Washington Circle, across from GW Hospital. Tommy Schrader emerges from his tent to ask for a blanket. He became homeless a year and a half ago after the restaurant where he worked closed. How's this winter been for you? Uh, cold. cold. They try to get us in, in warm centers and shelters and stuff, but uh, me and my friend over here, we, we don't do the shelters. Are there ever nights you go inside? Um, no, not, not really. No. I just brave it out here. <laughs> For Schrader and the other folks on the street this bitter night, staying in a crowded, dirty shelter where he says people will just as soon steal your stuff as look at you is not an option. Schrader plans to stay on the streets until something better comes along. I'm Lauren Ober. As homelessness has increased in Washington, it's actually decreased nationwide. The U.S. saw 11 percent fewer homeless people in 2014 than in 2007. Now, here in the nation's capital, as of Thursday, 2,390 people were staying in shelters and motel rooms provided by the city. Now, that doesn't include individuals living outdoors, like we just heard about in that last story. So it's no wonder Mayor Muriel Bowser has put helping the homeless toward the top of her to-do list. She's brought on Laura Zeilinger as the new director of human services. I recently visited Laura at her office, where she told me a major reason D.C.'s homeless numbers have gone up is the supply of affordable housing has gone down. In the district, you have to work three and a half minimum wage jobs to basically afford a one and a half to two bedroom apartment. And so um, as we have not kept pace with the growth in affordability and the needs of that, we see more and more people who are either on the brink of becoming homeless or are experiencing homelessness. You have a really interesting background. You worked most recently as executive director of the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness. But before that, you worked for D.C. Mayor Adrian Fenty. What did you learn about homelessness in Washington during your time with the Fenty administration, and how might you apply those lessons now? When I worked for the district during that Fenty administration, one of the things that Mayor Fenty was uh, very committed to was that we would be implementing a housing-first approach on chronic homelessness, which means that 
rather than having people have to reach a certain behavioral threshold in order to be able to demonstrate that they're ready to move into housing, that we approach it as housing is therapeutic in itself. When people have the stability of housing, they're able to access the services that we are also providing to them at the same time to be able to really reintegrate into community and be successful. And so we did really a large-scale push around creating those housing opportunities and providing a housing-first approach. And we were able to move fairly quickly and see a lot of very exciting change on behalf of people who had been unsheltered for a very long time or had spent many, many years in homelessness. And so I come from that. I take a sense of possibility and optimism that as we better understand the solutions that work, um, we have the capacity here, and we certainly have the resources here to implement those solutions. You know, there are other things I learned. I mean, I learned from things that we did well, like the example I just gave you, and and things that we could have done better. Um, The mayor has made affordable housing a top priority of hers, and people really feel a sense of urgency around doing better on behalf of the residents of the district who are experiencing homelessness, and an access to housing for people as the primary solution. We weren't there during my first tour in local government, but I think we are there as a community. But there are also problems, and we need to be honest about what's not working and how we address those problems. It is easy to look at homelessness as a discrete problem and to think about people who experience homelessness as the homeless, we need to just remind ourselves that um, homelessness is a condition that people experience when they don't have a safe, stable place to be, and that it's also one that is very solvable by providing the stability of, a, of housing and supporting people in that housing um, when they need it. So I'm very excited about the opportunity to be a part of that and to be a part of an administration that has made it such a high priority because it, it is an urgent issue and people are really suffering right now as we uh, figure out how to do that better. That was Laura Zeilinger, the new director of the District of Columbia Department of Human Services. After the break, out of the shelter, but for how long? This apartment has motivated me so much to not give up. I don't care where I have to work or how many jobs I have to attain. I'm not losing my place. So it's it's up to me. You know, the ball is in my court. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. We're calling today's show A Roof Over Your Head. 
In just a bit, we'll look at a program known as Rapid Rehousing. It's designed to get people out of shelters and into their own apartments fast. But first, we're going to hear from a woman we first heard on Metro Connection last May. Our room is basically this uh, a, a little bigger than two walk-in closets, basically, with a bathroom. Her name is Tamika Smalls, and when we first met her, she was living in a motel room with her three young children and her husband, Horatio. Earlier this month, Jonathan Wilson checked back in with Tamika to see how she and her family are faring now. Finding an affordable apartment for a family of five can be a challenge in D.C. Finding room in a homeless shelter for a family of that size may be even harder. That's part of what had driven Tamika Smalls and her family out to Jessup, Maryland, where we first talked late last spring. The giggles and cries of Tamika's two youngest children, a one-year-old and a two-year-old, are rarely out of earshot when you talk with her. Add a daughter in high school and Tamika's husband Horatio, and you get a family of five. Tamika has another daughter away at college. Shortly, I guess a few weeks after we talked to you, um, our eldest daughter came from home from college. So then it was five of us all, I mean six of us all in that one room. The room was in a motel. Smalls and her husband both received disability checks due to a laundry list of medical problems. They were using much of the money to pay for the cheapest rooms they could find within an hour of the city. Besides being a tough way to live, it simply wasn't sustainable. Needless to say, within two months we ran out of money. Um, and so like in August, yeah, just after, shortly after Shakira left to go back to school, um, we, we began sleeping in our van. The family and their van moved back into D.C. since Shakela, Small's second oldest daughter, goes to Wilson High School. And whenever we had money, we would, you know, spend a day at um, one or two days at the, um, another motel, any motel we can get into that we can afford. Um, but mostly for like three, four months, we were in our van. Then, with the arrival of winter, temperatures began to plummet. And with just the family van to call home, every night became a battle against hypothermia. Worrying about the children, two-year-old Shemaya and infant Azira kept Smalls from ever getting a full night's sleep. And every 30 minutes, I had to keep waking up to make sure the kids were breathing. And at that point, I said, God, I can't do anything else. I just don't know what to do. That's just a distressingly common story. Steve Berg is the vice president for programs and policy at the National Alliance to End Homelessness. He says for families, homelessness almost always boils down to simple economics. I mean, a lot of single adults who are homeless, particularly the ones who are on the street for a long time, have these very serious medical issues of mental health problems, uh, other kinds of disabilities. For families, it's really more just they just can't make enough money to pay for whatever childcare they need and everything else and maintain a, a place to live. If either Tamika or her husband could land a steady job, that would help things. One problem is that poor health that I mentioned. For Tamika, lung problems, lumbar disc disease, and chronic asthma are just a few of her ailments. Her husband Horatio battles lung and back problems as well, along with gout. And simply being homeless exacerbates everything. You can't, one, get a stable job if you have nowhere to to live, because nobody's going to understand, well, I can't come into work today because 
um, um, uh, my back is locked up because I didn't have a good night's sleep or the bed I'm sleeping on is not adequate. They're not going to understand that. And two, if your children, if your your family is not in, in, a, in a good place, you're not going to be able to work anybody's job. It might be easy for some to dismiss sentiments like these as excuses or denials or wonder whether Tamika and her husband would rather live this life than do the work it takes to put a roof over their family's heads. But Steve Berg, who's been studying and working with the homeless for three decades, says that sort of thinking is a failure of imagination. It's hard work to be homeless and survive. So it's not like, you know, this is the this is the lazy person's way out is to live on the street. I mean, it's it just doesn't work that way. The idea with that people who are who are raising kids would sort of be okay with living in a car. I I mean, if you really think about it, I, I don't think that's that's just that believable. Indeed, sleeping in a car in freezing temperatures wasn't okay for Tamika and her family. And miraculously, by midwinter, space in D.C. general opened up. Now the family has even more room in an apartment-style family shelter on Naylor Road in D.C. But Tamika says these small steps forward aren't enough. Like anyone else, she has dreams and goals. And she says even a winter like this past one won't shake her belief that with a little prayer and a little luck, it's all within reach. A year from now, I want to be in Howard taking the physician's assistance program. I want to be doing something, um, even if it's being an evangelist or a minister or even just a mentor to somebody who's going through something I did. A year from now, it will be different because... I'm going to make sure it's different in one way or another. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Our next story takes us back a few years to the Great Recession, when hundreds of thousands of people were losing their jobs each month. Congress authorized $1.5 billion to prevent this rising unemployment from sparking a homelessness crisis. In 2009, the government created a new program to get homeless people into apartments quickly. That federal program is over, but rapid rehousing, as it's called, has caught on across the country, including here in D.C. But as Jacob Fenston tells us, some homeless advocates question the program's success. This month, about 250 homeless families are housed at the district's largest family shelter, D.C. General. Three times that many are living in apartments like this one. Hi, are you Monique? Hi, I'm Jacob. Monique Chandler lives in this two-bedroom in Southeast with her three-year-old son, Logan. Come here. You want to play with your child? Right now, her only income comes from TANF, or welfare payments. She pays 40% of that income toward rent. D.C.'s rapid rehousing program pays the rest. Okay, so my resume is summary of qualifications, seeking a challenging administrative secretarial career. For most of her adult life, Chandler has paid her own way. For 14 years, she was an administrative assistant at the Washington Post. But in 2013, she was laid off as the company downsized. Soon, she didn't have a place to stay. It was very devastating to go to the programs and hear, the, hear me called homeless family. You know, I beat myself up a lot. Because, you know, I'm not working, I'm a mother, 
and I can't provide for my son. I don't have a place for him. For 11 months, Chandler and her son were in emergency shelter put up by the city in a motel on New York Avenue. Last fall, she was offered an apartment through Rapid Rehousing. It was good news. She'd get her own place again, but the rent subsidy would run out in a year or less. Then she'd be expected to pay the full market rate rent herself, 1500 a month. And I'm just like, okay, well... I'm looking ahead of the 12-month period that they help you out. I'm looking, okay, well, what if after the 12 months I'm not working? You know, what am I going to do? The idea is really to say to families, you can do it. We can help you. How can we help you? Kelly Sweeney McShane runs Community of Hope. It's the organization that, funded by the city, placed Chandler in the apartment. She says rapid rehousing represents a shift in thinking about homelessness. Historically, we've provided shelter to keep families safe. And then there's also been long-term rental vouchers and long-term supportive services, which are really important. But that long-term help is also expensive. Rapid rehousing is a way to help more people more quickly. Sort of spread your dollars a little farther. It's not the right answer for everyone, but it could be for the majority of D.C.'s homeless families, about 80 percent, according to needs assessments conducted when families enter shelter. Sweeney McShane says for families who try it, rapid rehousing is working. We have certainly found with the families that we work with, 87 percent of the families have not returned to shelter after two years of their assistance ending. But critics say the city is relying too much on the program. You really just have to look at the math. Patty Malehi-Fougere is with the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless. She says for many people getting by on welfare or disability assistance, it doesn't add up. At the end of the district subsidy of their rent, you know, there's just no way that they're going to be able to maintain based on that very limited income that they have. She says the program's high success rate doesn't tell the full story, since it's based not on the number of people who stay in their apartments, but on the number who don't show up at shelters again. Success could mean that a family is doubled up again, that a family is couch surfing, that uh, a parent is back with an abusive partner. Um, But they're successful because they haven't come back into shelter. I'm really not sure where I'm going to go. Dominique Foster has been in rapid rehousing for about a year. The rent subsidy will end next month or April at the latest. At that point, she says she won't be able to afford the rent. It's 1900 a month for the four-bedroom townhouse where she lives with her four kids. I just have to probably try to find a one-bedroom or something and still be able to afford that. It won't be enough room, but they'll have a head of, you know, a roof over their head. And with your income now, um, do you think you can't afford a a one-bedroom? No, not at all. She has a job, actually, two part-time jobs, and she says hours will pick up in the summer. The money's there. I can make the money. But right now, because it's so slow, my pay stubs aren't showing that. At the heart of D.C.'s homelessness problem are the high cost of housing and the high unemployment rate, above 20 percent for single parents in the city. Kate Coventry is an analyst with the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. She says to afford market rent, a single mom making minimum wage would have to work three full-time jobs, more than 120 hours a week. The district lost half of its affordable housing between 2000 and 2010. So our wages have not kept pace with that loss of affordable housing and that increase in housing costs. This year, the district has budgeted enough money to add 300 families to rapid rehousing to a total of 1,100. But the problem is finding that many affordable units. Well, we don't believe it's an impossible problem to solve. Let's start there. Last week, uh, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser uh, announced the city would hire four new housing navigators to help homeless families families find those units, 
Homeless advocates say it's a good start. I think it is a mistake to think that the homeless system alone can solve all of these issues of poverty. Kelly Sweeney McShane again with Community of Hope. We need more affordable housing. We need more jobs. We need more living wage jobs. Um, We need other services that will help families not fall through the cracks. I'm Jacob Fenston. Among those advocating for better housing options in D.C. is a group called the People for Fairness Coalition. These folks know exactly what it's like to be homeless, since at some point in their lives, they've all been there. And because they understand the issue so well, they're in a special position to help shift the dialogue around homelessness in the city. And, as Lauren Ober tells us, to help create change. If you're going to write policy that will impact the lives of the city's homeless residents, it might make sense to work with folks who have actually been homeless, right? That's a lot of common sense in that what you just said. But, uh, you know, you know, common sense is not common. And, uh, and for us to actually get that voice at the table, it has been a hard slog. To say the least. But Robert Warren, who was homeless from 2008 to 2010, is now sitting at that table. As the director of the People for Fairness Coalition, Warren is one of the most vocal advocates for the rights of D.C.'s homeless residents. The People for Fairness Coalition is a loose group of homeless and formerly homeless people who meet every week at Miriam's Kitchen in Foggy Bottom. Today, they're sharing space in the cafeteria with folks eating breakfast and making crafts. John McDermott Jr. is one of the founders of the group. We, we do as much as we can. We go to City Hall and we talk about the issues. We try to keep tabs on what the mayor is doing, what the city council is doing. If we don't agree, we go speak against it. And if we do agree, we thank them for pushing money from one place to another to get people in the housing. Because housing does end homelessness. And it's cheaper to put them in the house than put them in a shelter. McDermott knows a little something about homelessness in the nation's capital. In the mid-2000s, the former White House banquet chef landed on the streets as a result of his alcoholism. While homeless, McDermott dealt with diabetes, cirrhosis, epilepsy, hepatitis C, and more. He lost most of his teeth and now has trouble walking. When the city threatened to close the Franklin School shelter where McDermott was staying in 2007, he decided to get involved in the debate. We came together with six raggedy white people and formed the first meeting. McDermott remembers a city official at the time said the group would never last. That was seven years ago. The group has grown. I think we got 36 members, all races, anybody's invited. Once they've been to three meetings in a row, they become a voting member. They have a say-so on the project we work on and everything. In the landscape of homeless advocacy in the district, the People for Fairness Coalition is unique. It's the only group of self-advocates on the city's interagency council on homelessness. At today's meeting, the PFFC is talking about the new mayor's upcoming budget. The group is hoping to lobby Muriel Bowser to fund programs that it believes will drastically reduce homelessness in the district. Robert Warren leads the discussion. I guess uh, I'll just open it up to the floor and people can kind of chime in about what they think some of our budget ads should be this year. The group has a lot of opinions. Janet Sharp, who lives in supportive housing at N Street Village in Northwest, wants to focus on seniors. I do know for a fact that the longer the seniors live on the street, their health becomes frail. 
And what I think we need to do is get seniors in some place so we can stabilize their health. Michael Lee wanted the group to prioritize homeless health care. I'd like to say, um, most importantly, um, with this budget, Homeless People Health Center, health care for the homeless. From a health care point of view, this is crucially, critically important. Over the course of the meeting, the PFFC also talked about meaty housing issues like peer-coordinated entry. That's a system where formerly homeless people assess a street-bound person's needs and help place him or her in appropriate housing. Kyla Dixon, the group's moderator and meeting scribe, is an advocacy specialist at Miriam's Kitchen. That was peer coordinated entry. How much would it cost to employ uh, peer housing advocates um, and to advocate for the money that would it would cost to employ one or two peer specialists in the coordinated entry system, which is something that is not happening and really ties very closely to your priorities. More than anything, the group would like to see people get out of shelters and into their own affordable housing. John McDermott says before anyone who is homeless can address health concerns, addiction issues, or joblessness, they have to have a safe place to live. And for McDermott, the best way for homeless people to get into housing is through self-advocacy. See, homeless people got to realize they got to be part of the recovery from homelessness. And once you become part of the recovery, then you can start working on your own issues to get into housing. But you got to fight. They're not going to walk up and hand you a set of keys and here's your house. Oh, you got to fight. And that's what the People for Fairness Coalition has been doing for the past seven years. And the group has seen results. A number of its members have found housing since joining the coalition. And that is the ultimate goal. I'm Lauren Ober. In a minute, the libraries are one of the few places where people can come and just be. So they're an important lifeline. The D.C. Public Library joins the effort to face homelessness head on. It's coming your way as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. We've been calling today's program A Roof Over Your Head as we explore the rising rate of homelessness in the nation's capital. And we'll start this part of the show at the Public Library, a place that's become a hub for members of Washington's homeless community. So much so, in fact, that the D.C. Public Library has hired its first Health and Human Services Coordinator to help address the issue. Her name is Jean Badalamenti. I recently sat down with the trained social worker at the Martin Luther King Jr. Public Library in downtown D.C., where she described the role libraries often play for people experiencing homelessness. We are warm in the winter, cool in the summer. People have access to information. They can be online looking for jobs, connecting with family members through Facebook and email. And when you're, particularly for folks who are staying at low barrier shelters, when the shelters close at 7 a.m., the libraries are one of the few places where people can come and just be. So they're an important lifeline. 
So how is your job structured in terms of giving homeless customers at the libraries what it is they need? You know, a huge piece of what we do here is really helping our staff understand homelessness, understand what issues people are facing who are homeless, and doing some trainings around homelessness uh, for folks, but then also giving folks the necessary information so that they can give referrals. When people are coming up to the desk asking where I can get food, where I can get uh, shelter. And right now, we just kind of have a hodgepodge of pieces of paper because that's how it works in the city right now of here's a list of 10 food pantries, etc. But the library has just received a grant from the Knight Foundation and we're partnering with Code for America to create sort of an online interface of health and human services data so that when people are coming up to a librarian, the librarian is able to ask the right questions to get people to the right service provider and give the right referral. Now, I've heard that several other cities across the country have established some sort of liaison for members of the homeless community within their library system. Can you tell us about some of those other programs and how your role perhaps is a little bit different from those? Sure. So San Francisco was the first city, as far as I know, to bring on a social worker to connect with patrons who are homeless and actually is brought on some other staff, and they do a lot of case management and referrals. In Dallas, just recently, they've hired a social worker. In Arizona, there's a public health nurse that's been hired. So those are some of the other cities. My role is a little different in that I'm not solely focused on what's happening with the homeless customers who are here, and I'm not necessarily connecting with them one-on-one. That's not my role. Well, and also the fact that you're training your staff to help interface and interact with people experiencing homelessness. It seems like a very different role for librarians to have, one that asks them to perhaps stretch in a way they may never have anticipated when they got into this field. So what has been the reaction from the staff here? I think for the most part, people are happy to have the information. I think it's been frustrating. And some of them, you know, know exactly where to refer people, but a lot don't. And so helping them get to that point to know that you should call the shelter hotline, and this is the number for the shelter hotline. You know, the library is hired about a year and a half ago, 100 new librarians. So that's a lot to train and help understand and understand the homeless services system and the social services system. That was Jean Badalamenti, Health and Human Services Coordinator with the D.C. Public Library. Once Jean and I finished our interview, she got up from the table where we'd been sitting, headed over to the computers, and brought back a man named Andrew. He was dressed in spotless blue jeans with a gray hoodie over his light purple button-down shirt. Andrew is 51, originally from Baltimore. He's been homeless since 2011. After we talked for more than an hour, he told me this was the first time he'd ever opened up about how hard it's been to maintain his identity— after losing nearly everything. Here is some of his story. Well, my name is Andrew, and I've been homeless for the past three, three and a half years. I used to be a federal employee, well, a federal contractor. And the reason I'm homeless is because the contract that I was on just ended abruptly. Congress didn't fund the contract in a timely manner. 
So the contract ended that Friday, and they let me know that Monday that I didn't have a job. <laughs> this is why I'm here. Everything just happened so fast because as soon as I lost the contract, it took four months from the time they sent me my termination papers to the time they evicted me in my house. It don't take long. It's just like if you're living from paycheck to paycheck, it doesn't take long. Uh, when I first got homeless and was realized that I was going to be homeless, it's just like I didn't know where to go, who to contact, anything. So I had to start from scratch, and it's just like it was just a big learning experience because you're just like you're used to doing things one way, and now you had to actually start from scratch and actually do it from another perspective. It's been a challenge. I didn't think I was going to be homeless for this. April will be three years, well, four years. And I didn't think it's just like, okay, well, since I have my resume, it's just like because I have a bachelor's in um, IT uh, communications. I was doing help desk for the Department of Justice. So I was just, okay, so since I have a resume like this, I shouldn't have a problem getting a job. But little did I know, there's a lot of other people that have a resume just as as I do and that are not homeless people that can have get a job, I mean, more than I do. And it just, it was a kick in the face for me. It's just like, I thought I was this person, but I wasn't, I wasn't that person before. I'm a different person now. I used to plan ahead, but now, and right now, it's just like, it's just a day-to-day experience because I have no idea where I'm going to be tomorrow, a month from now, a year from now. I just, I have no idea. And I got a lot of people that used to work with me that I can't actually see. I don't want them to see me in a homeless state. And they say, well, well, we can help you, Andrew. And I just couldn't see. I couldn't look them in the eye. It took me a while to actually go up to where I used to work. Oh, that was painful. And actually see people and see my old office and everything. And just seeing things where, where they used to be. And just say that I used to be this way. And I'm not. Well, they came one time and gave me this envelope. And it was 200 It was $200 in it. Wow. They actually took up a collection in the office. And I asked why. They said, because you are injured. This is the person we see. And this is the person that you are. And you always will be. That was Andrew, a man I met earlier this week at the MLK Library in downtown D.C. Andrew is currently living in shelters in the city and hopes to land another job soon. We'll head just over the district line now to a shelter in Montgomery County, Maryland. 
This shelter serves a portion of the hundreds of homeless people in the county, including Latino day laborers, many of whom have a hard time making ends meet during the cold winter months. Armando Truel brings us the story. It's 9 a.m. at the Interfaith Works Community Visions Homeless Shelter in Silver Spring. Usually, those who spent the night here asked to leave, but not today. Several dozen men and women are signing up for the hypothermia list. Outside, the temperature is in the low teens, so they'll be able to stay indoors. 57-year-old Evelia Rodriguez is in the rec room, where most of the people on the hypothermia list hang out when they aren't doing caretaking chores around the building. Rodriguez, an undocumented immigrant from Honduras, has been coming to the Interfaith Community Works Shelter for the past three winters. During the spring, summer, and most of the fall, Rodriguez shares a small rental apartment in Langley Park with four to six other day workers. But when winter hits, Rodriguez finds it impossible to pay even a few hundred dollars a month in rent and also send money to his wife and children in Honduras. If you can't pay, you're out on the street, he shrugs. Rodriguez says it's harder to find steady landscaping or construction day jobs during the cold weather. The employers naturally want energetic, strong young men, and that takes away job opportunities, he explains. Rodriguez's story is a familiar one to Gabriel Santos. He's a case manager at the shelter and says he sees more and more underemployed older male Latinos in need of help during the winter months. They have been in the country for more than 10 years uh, working in the labor job, but when they are older, it's difficult because people who are looking for workers, they like young people who are strong and they can work for long hours. It's unclear exactly how many Latino immigrants are in a position similar to Rodriguez's. The shelter doesn't break down information about its clients by ethnicity, age, or immigration status. Neither does Montgomery County, which estimates there were 891 homeless people in the jurisdiction last year. This year's tally will be announced in April. Mm-hmm. Rodriguez first came to Maryland in 1996 to better support his family. And for the next four years, he toiled as a day worker. He saved a few pennies, he says. It was actually $15,000 and returned to Honduras in 2000. He bought land, built a small house, and planted coffee, oranges, and bananas. But by late 2008, tough times in Honduras forced Rodriguez to again return to Maryland illegally. In five years, Rodriguez has managed to save a fraction of what he made during his first trip. His age, combined with the fact that there are fewer jobs and fewer employers willing to hire undocumented workers, is forcing his hand. Still, he's not quite ready to give up just yet. I'm giving it a few more years, and then I'm going back, he says. I'm Armando Drew.
Earlier this hour, we heard Jacob Fenston's story about rapid rehousing, an initiative here in D.C. and across the country aimed at getting people out of shelters and providing them short-term help paying their rent. But not everyone can get back on his or her feet so quickly. For those individuals, the city runs a program called Permanent Supportive Housing, or PSH. PSH tends to be for people with a physical or mental health issue that would make it hard to stay in housing without plenty of help. Martin Ostromule brings us the story of one man who knows the program well. My name is Walden Adams. I'm from Washington, D.C. I was born in Columbia Hospital, not far from here, uh, Columbia Women's Hospital. Walden Adams is at work in the offices of Miriam's Kitchen, an organization in Foggy Bottom that works to feed and house the city's chronically homeless residents. The 52-year-old is an advocacy fellow at the organization. His job is to raise awareness and support for programs that seek to house the homeless. It's a story he tells well because it's one he's lived. And I've been homeless off and on up until um, about six years ago. Adams says that from a young age, he progressed steadily through drugs and disappointment, with one often fueling the other. He struggled with mental illness and cycled between living on the street and in hospitals. 21 is when I got introduced to cocaine, and that's when it really, really went bad. I dropped out of college, uh, lost, I kept losing jobs, I kept losing places to stay. And, and back then in the 80s, you could find another place. I mean, I could work at Woody somewhere and get a, a decent apartment in a certain area. But as um, time went by, um, salary and apartment ranges kind of separated. They, you know, one went down, the other one went up. So it was hard to find a place. It was harder and harder. So I spent a lot of time on psych wards and um, spent most of my time at St. E's. Most of my 20s were spent in St. Elizabeth's. After being discharged, Adams contracted HIV, which steadily worsened until he was diagnosed with AIDS. With his health failing, he spent more and more time in emergency rooms. The, thing I, the words I love to hear were you being admitted, as that meant that I had a place to stay for a couple of weeks that I could eat and maybe get my clothes clean. So, um, so I think sometimes it may have been a blessing that I acquired AIDS because it meant instead of being in the street, I kept getting admitted to hospitals. During one hospital stay, Adams hit a new low. He didn't want to live anymore. He hatched a plan to counteract the medications he was given by running around his room, thinking that he would literally sweat them out. It had the opposite effect, he says. So I had this crazy idea. I told you I was bipolar. So I put the bed in the middle of the room in the psych ward and started running around it. I ran around it every day for 40 minutes, and I went to an hour every morning. And it kind of kept me alive because even though I had planned to save my pills and kill myself when I got out, the running made me feel good, just running around that bed every day. And and so when I got discharged, instead of going with my plan, when I got my next check, I was going to go to a hotel, take my pills, drink and die. Um, I had some, some type of hope. I liked the running for some reason. With this newfound hope, Adams headed to a support center where he was connected with something he never imagined he'd have, his own apartment. Anyway, uh, next thing I know, in two weeks, I was signing a lease and moving in. Adams had come across Permanent Supportive Housing, a program that sets out to connect the chronically homeless to homes and services they can use to start fresh. The theory is simple. A home is the best foundation for the stability that many homeless individuals need before taking on their other challenges. I'm going to be honest. My first day, I relapsed. I had a few dollars left, and I relapsed. Because the first thing is like, you know, um, uh, you know, you got a place now people can come over. You know, that's why I started thinking at first, that you forget the gratitude you had. And, but then that next morning, I realized that this, you know, I didn't have to go looking for a place to stay after I got high. I mean, I'm still here. You know, nobody put me out like I, that happened in transitional house. I still, I gave myself a chance. 
He also took the chance to take that newfound appreciation of running he developed in the hospital a little further, 26 miles further. The best feeling I ever had was when I ran that first marathon. That feeling of crossing that finish line was so I mean, I've never completed nothing in my life. I, I failed in school, failed in college. Adam says he's still struggling to learn the basics of living in his own apartment, like cooking his own meals. He's also still watching his health and knows that fully building a normal life takes time. But he says that finding a place to live and directing his energies towards running marathons, 12 so far, with the 13th this week, have set him on a path he never assumed he would reach. I've had a, a, a six-year extension on my life. Um, most of the people that I hung out with have died. So I didn't plan on being around this long. So it's now that it's been six years, now I have to actually make plans on going back out. Because, you know, I, everybody was planning on me dying. And so I, I still have that fear I still have to get over. I've got, you know, I've got like 35-something years of being a failure and things falling apart. So I still have that paranoia. And so it's taken me a while. Some people take longer than others. Some people get in this. They're going to get careers. They're going to be lawyers and doctors when they get in permanent supportive housing. Some people just start getting a life like me. He says not everyone will succeed immediately once they get into housing, but at least they'll have a place to live while they figure out their next step. I'm Martin Ostermule. You can hear more from Martin's conversation with Walden Adams, including more about how he feels running saved his life. It's on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Fenston, Martin Ostermule, Armando Trull, and Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and to the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. This week's theme song is by Eric Shimalonis. You can find information about all the music we use at metroconnection.org. And while you're there, you can also find a link to our free weekly podcast or check us out on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show all about changes. We'll look at an effort to change the way D.C. police officers interact with transgender people. We'll hear about a big change in southwest Washington as Hobby Lobby president Steve Green builds a new museum just blocks from the National Mall. And we'll visit a farm in Maryland where the leftovers from making beer are turning into some seriously sweet snacks for pigs. Guess what, girls? Right around this corner, we've got something delicious for you. There you go. Mm. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.